He has turned so many of our lives around. He is continuing to turn lives around. Um, we, we want to give Him praise this morning. Let's locate in our Bibles the Old Testament book of Ruth. And we're going to continue our series on Back to Bethlehem, the Gospel according to Ruth, concluding this morning the first chapter. will be in verse 19. So when you get to Ruth chapter 1, it'll be in verse 19. If you see anyone that's struggling to find it in their Bible, do give them a hand. It's in the Old Testament toward the front of your Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. If you're starting from the beginning, if you're starting from later, um, you'll have 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, Ruth. Let's, let's read. So the two of them, remember last week, that's Naomi and Ruth. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why? Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We give God praise for His Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You that... In them we have everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Thank you for stories like this, which may be unfamiliar to a great many of us, and uh, snippets even of the story which we might not see their immediate uh, import. We pray, Lord, that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to understand all that you would have us to today. I ask that uh, everyone would leave having grasped something of this um, and, and that not only for their information, but for their transformation as followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there is someone here today who has found themselves not unlike Naomi, wandering away, leaving the land of promise to go to Moab, we pray, Lord, that you would, you would bring them home that you would draw them back from uh, that place of, of idolatry, of false uh, worship, and that you would bring them to a right relationship with you, renewed relationship with the covenant community of your people. We ask that you would do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we do not have the power or the ability or, or the wisdom even to, uh, to go about that properly. So we pray that as the scriptures are explained this morning, you would do the work of, of um, uh, saving people and restoring people. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw how Naomi and Ruth were um, in the land of Moab still wrestling with what they were going to do. Naomi has received good news. She's heard good news. The good news is, I hope you remember, 
The same good news, basically, that we have today, just an enhanced form in Jesus Christ. The good news is the person of the Lord. It is the presence of the Lord. And it is the power of the Lord. The good news is, in in Naomi's context, the Lord has visited His people and given them food. You see, Israel was in a time of famine. It was famine in more ways than one, really. Uh, They were enduring a season of spiritual compromise, political chaos, and of course there was the national crisis of the famine itself. There were many reasons why one might leave Bethlehem if one lost sight of who God is and what God has done and what His purpose is in that place. Limelech, apparently it would seem, had lost sight of that. He went to Moab, a nation of people who had historically been hostile to his own people, and not only hostile to them, but hostile to their God. They had aggressively rejected the people of God, and they had sought to curse them. They did that by sorcery. Last Sunday night in our Backstories series, we were talking about Moab, and we saw how they actively, through sorcery, tried to curse them. And in the hilarious providence of God, Balaam paid, all paid up. He's going to be cursing the people of Israel. And out of his mouth, blessings. And not only blessings upon the people of Israel, and that would have ticked off the king of Moab well enough, but suddenly he starts cursing the Moabites. At that point, it's just like, no, what have I done? But Balaam salvaged the situation. We're told elsewhere that he led the Moabites to lead the people of Israel astray. How? Not actually by idolatry. That's not where he started. I know sometimes we think, you know, belief precedes behavior. So what one believes, they come to uh, idolatrous beliefs and then that's going to inform their behavior. But let's, let's be completely honest about how, um, how this works. Oftentimes people live immoral lives and then they create gods in their image to fit that. So oftentimes, our preferences for sinful behavior shape what we believe. We choose beliefs that shape ourselves. That's why if you look at the pantheon of pagan gods throughout history, they look absolutely terrible because they are reflections of the worst of sinful behaviors that are excused because, look, the gods did it. But really, it started with us, didn't it? So this is what's happening with um, uh, the the Moabites back in that chapter of their history. They were um, uh, leading the people of Israel astray, not by tempting them with Baal worship, because that in and of itself is not tempting. They rather led them astray by having um, uh, cult prostitutes of Baal show up at the camp and seduce the leaders of the camp, and then other people followed because, look, our leaders are doing this. They're having nice meals together, and then these meals are a little more than meals. I mean, our evening ones have been, I saw the guys put an E rating on the uh, the podcast. Uh, We've been a little more specific, but for the sake of everyone, it's more than food that's going on. And so 
when, when, when the people are led astray in that way, they're struck by plague. God strikes them down, but we have uh, this powerful image of Aaron running into the middle of the camp with a censer and standing between death and life, standing between um, God and man and appealing for the salvation of his people. Well, that was a long time ago. But the animosity of the Moabites and the people of Israel had not changed. And so, these were people who could not even enter the assembly of the Lord, but it seems that the people of the Lord, Elimelech and his family, have brought the assembly to them. In so doing, they have exchanged the covenant responsibilities and blessings of being Israelites for idolatry. They have exchanged the house of bread, the fruitful house of bread, Bethlehem, for a place of great darkness and sin. And who knows, that might be your story today. But as we're working through Ruth, we're seeing a, a woman, Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, who never was a part of that family, returning. And it is my prayer that as God works, that you would come back to Bethlehem. That you would come back to Jesus. That you would come back to the salvation which is found in Him and in Him alone. That you would reject all false gospels. That you would reject all false teaching. That you would reject all idolatry. And that you would come back to Jesus Christ. What happens though, when you, when you purpose, as Ruth did at the conclusion of last week's text, uh, to, to pursue that path, and, and whatever the consequences, you are, going, you are going to worship the Lord God. What, what happens when you actually get there? Well, that's what we're seeing in the text this morning. We're talking about arriving in Bethlehem. Arriving in Bethlehem may cause a big commotion. You know, when you, you get to a place and um, everyone starts talking... Everyone starts asking questions. Everyone starts, you can see the, the thoughts before they've even expressed them. They're thinking, they're looking. You know stuff's going on. And there's different kinds of commotion that can happen when someone returns to the Lord or when they come to the Lord for the first time. Notice in the text, the two of them, that is Naomi and Ruth, came to Bethlehem and when they came, the whole town was stirred because of them. Now, there can be a negative commotion. What is she doing here? Don't you remember when she went away? She left us. Left us here to starve. Back when, when we had the famine. Her and her family. So disappointing. And, and, and what good came out of it? Where's her husband? What's Has she left him? Has he left her? Is he dead? It's just her. Whisper, whisper. Her sons. Where are they? We see what's up. We know what's happening. Not really great. What a waste. Well, that's a negative commotion. And you can play it out in, 
in your mind. And I want you to be warned from responding to people who come into our presence who have been but come back or who were never but have arrived. And for various reasons, it could be um, uh, the way they look, it could be the way they speak, it could be the baggage of their sin, it could be any number of things guarding our hearts and our minds against that kind of negative commotion. It is not redemptive. It is not reconciliatory. It is not reflective of the forgiveness that has been extended to us in Jesus Christ by the Lord. So many of us have stood at the front and testified to our sins. So many of us, anyone who is a member of Grace Baptist Church has at some point stood in front of the congregation and declared, Jesus is my Savior. Now here's what I mean by that. And for some, it's a really gnarly story of all sorts of crazy things that have happened that brought them to a place of absolute brokenness before God and repentance of sin. For others, it's a story of how, how God did not save me out of that, but He saved me from that because um, I, he, he arrested me by His grace before I, I went down that road. But in any case, all of us can say all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us are recipients of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. All of us have cataclysmically failed to measure up to God's expectations. We have fallen short of the glory of God. So there's not really any room for this kind of negative commotion as far as we are concerned, if that's what's going on in the text. But there's other ways in which the whole town could be stirred because of them. And in a town, I guarantee you there's a complicated array of responses and motivations. Another one is neutral, but curious, and perhaps a bit pitying. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's not, it's not aggressively negative. But it's almost patronizing. Oh, so, so sad. Oh, poor Naomi. Oh, who, who, who's the lovely Moabite lady? Oh, you know, all of these things that people, noises they make that, that say a lot without saying anything. Where, where's Elimelech? Oh. What, what about Melon and Kilion? How are they doing? Oh. And then the, the comments they say among themselves. She looks different. Oh, she used to, she look, used to look nice. She was a pretty Ephrathite lady. Oh, so sad. She, she, look, look, look at her eyes. There's no, there's no light behind them. There's, there's nothing that... She's just a, a hollowed-out shell of her former self. She seems sad. Is she okay? What happened? What brought her here? And, and the, the questions are asked not always directly. There's a lot of talking about Naomi and Ruth, but not really talking with Naomi and Ruth. And the rumors get circulating, and they might mean well enough, but instead of actually pastorally caring for 
these ladies in their, their midst. Now, I, I, say, I keep saying ladies, maybe I'm mistaken actually, that they're only asking about Naomi. Ruth's kind of the awkward person just sort of standing by. You know, when you meet someone in the street and there's, there's that person that's really, they're, they're, they're having great sort of interaction, long lost friends, and you're just sort of stood there and you're just, you know, don't know, do I, do I just carry on walking? Do I go into a shop? Do I say, you know what, I think, I think we're done here. I'll leave them to it. We've, we've been there. Poor Ruth. They're all asking about Naomi. No one wants to know her, know anything about her. So that's, that's another unhelpful way that we can communicate when it comes to these type people who are returning to the Lord or, or those who are coming to Him for the first time. Instead of talking about people or creating a commotion about people, let's go and engage them and encourage them and minister to them. Now, there's another kind of commotion though, and, and I would love it if that is really what is in view here. The town is, the whole town is stirred because of them. And it's a po- it could be a positive commotion. What was lost has been found. No, better than that, what actively, rebelliously went away has come back. Our sister is back. Look. Is that Naomi? So good to see you. How we've missed you. It's wonderful to... To, to, to see you back. How can we help you? How can we care for you? How, how can we minister to you now? What, what can we pray for you about? How can we walk with you through the days ahead? Our response should not be framed by assuming the worst or assuming the best, but really by assuming nothing. And instead, offering a welcome to a lost person who has come home. Likewise, for those who are new arrivals in Bethlehem, do, do, do not be frightened or overwhelmed by such things. And do not be put off by the, the real humanity of our responses. There are so many things that, that we carry in our lives that inform the way we respond when we're getting to know someone or seeing someone that, that inform how... And, and God's not done with us. He's working on us. Please don't project your own anxieties and insecurities onto another person's behavior, onto their questions, onto the commotion. Together we'll get through the is that Naomi stage and move toward redemptively relational wholeness. Jesus says in Luke 15, 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous ones who do not need to repent. So if you are on the responding end to a Naomi or Ruth type situation, your response should be discerningly reflective of the kind of welcome a sinner receives in the heavenly kingdom. And if you are on the Naomi or Ruth side of that situation, you must come not hiding your sin, not worried about how you look to others, but confessing, casting your cares upon Him. We've all been there. 
And by grace we are saved through faith. And it is not of works, lest anyone should boast. I hope when we think about the gospel, we are stirred. And we see God at work in someone saving them, we are stirred. When, when we see people that, that we've never seen before walking in, in those doors that were stirred, but never mind those out there, when we leave today and we go on to the second busiest high street in the nation, reportedly, and we see the thousands of people that are streaming up the high road and going in and out of the shops and so forth, that we will be stirred. That when we, we think about our family members and our friends who may be in their number, not, not followers of Jesus Christ at all, not seeking Him, not, not really sure who or what they are or where they're going in life, that we would be stirred. And that God, whether we are receiving people as they come or, or, or um, as we are going and proclaiming to people as they're remaining out there, that we would be stirred with that redemptive, reconciliatory gospel message that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And to the uttermost, all who call on Him will be saved and He will not cast them out. So let, let, let's, let's have the good commotion in our soul today. There, there may be, if you arriving in Bethlehem, may cause a big commotion. But furthermore, we have to be realistic it may expose your personal condition. Notice in the text where they're asking, is this Naomi? And she says, very bitterly, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi bristles when they just ask, is that Naomi? She can't stand when they call her by her name. Her name means pleasant, gentle, sweet. A more colloquial uh, definition of it, it is sweetness. And she says, don't call me sweetness. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Stop, stop, stop calling me that. I'm a bitter woman. I don't want to hear it. She looks at herself before leaving Bethlehem. And she sees herself now and she despairs. She has changed and not for the better. She is a different woman and that is not a good thing. Please be warned that leaving the promise, provision, and protections of the covenant community of God's people leaves people empty. It left Naomi empty. Whatever the unpleasantness of the situation that took her away, that made her leave, she was still Naomi when she left. She was sweet, pleasant, gentle Naomi. But now she is so affected by, yes, a life of sin, a life of rebellion against God that took her out of the safety of that community, 
and by the resulting profound bereavement, loss, grief, and pain, that the emotional impact of her suffering has become her identity. She has, has made bitterness her personality. Have you ever done that? Some, some situation or something going on in your life and it becomes your whole personality. Something that you're defined by. Something that's so all-encompassing. And you, you, you might not see it, but other people see that. That, that. That's that. What's going on with them? It's a bit, they're going through some sort of weird phase with her. It's, it's a bitter personality. It's insufferable. You can't be around it. She's so affected. She says, call me Mara. There was a famine in the land and that, that famine was in the hands of a faithful God. There is still a land of promise for Naomi to go to. There is still a Bethlehem for her to go back to. But in going back, she is reminded of all that she lost and didn't have to. In walking away from Bethlehem Ephrathah, literally the fruitful house of bread, she exchanged a place of adequate provision and contentment, fullness, for emptiness. She wandered far from God and in leaving the land of promise, left the promise of the land. By leaving the house of bread the breadwinners of the house, her husband and sons, died. So she's bitter. The question is, is she bitter because she sees herself? Or is she bitter because she's blaming God? Is she bitter because she's just grieving and upset? Or is she bitter because it's God's fault? Read the text. She blames God for the consequences of her own sin and those of people around her. When, when someone raises the problem of suffering, the problem of pain, how, how do you respond? They, they, they sometimes act like that's the definitive answer for why there is no God. And normally, it's stated with the confidence of someone who has just discovered this, even though uh, it's very commonly used and commonly answered. And the Scriptures give a clear answer. The wages of sin is death. Sin has brought corruption into our world. It is not God's fault that we have rebelled against Him and faced the natural consequences of that rebellion. She, she, here's the thing though about Naomi. She acknowledges the law of cause and effect. She recognizes the principle of sowing and reaping. She believes in the theological reality that God is righteous and just and angry with the wicked and all of that, but it seems in the moment she resents God for applying these things to her. She says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. But what are we to make of her and her family walking away from Him? 
The Lord has brought me back empty, she says. But did you not do a very good job of emptying yourself? And is it not kind of the Lord to bring your empty self back to a place literally called the fruitful house of bread? The Lord has testified against me. But what were you testifying when you didn't trust Him? What were you testifying when you didn't submit to His sovereign plan and embrace His provision when going through a time of trial? Bethlehem survived. The people who knew you in the past are still around. And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. But did He do this because He's mean? Or is this the consequence of you living life by your own rules, which violate God's order and design for your good and flourishing? Do you see what... There's something all mixed up about this. And we hear these things time and again. Someone is angry with the God they say doesn't exist. And that has become their personality. And they're bitter. And they spend their life. There are people who spend their life arguing against the God they say doesn't exist, but with whom they're very angry and upset. It is not that the Lord is bitter. Nor is it that the Lord has been bitter. He is as He always has been. He is not affected by human passions like bitterness. Rather, Naomi is bitter. I don't, she knows it. That's why she says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Bitterness, by the way, does not have a place in the fruit of the Spirit. Remember uh, earlier in the year we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit and every, every Sunday I looked at a, a portion of that fruit and I don't remember bitterness being on that list. It is not a product of good relationship, fellowship, faith, hope, or love. It is, it is not indicative of a healthy response to suffering or difficulty, but bitterness is, is indicative rather of one who has been consumed by these things. You have let your trial get to you in such a way that it has overwhelmed you. And it has become you. Now you're a trial to someone else because of your bitterness. And as, as, as Naomi arrives in Bethlehem, it really shows. They're asking, is that Naomi? And it's all over her face. And then it's in her, her words. Think about light. You come closer to the light, the light starts showing things that you don't like. Or you enter different light. You know, if you're, if you're in advance of Christmas, maybe you're, you're shopping for some clothes and they, be, be warned, the lighting might be done in such a way to make you look more appealing or attractive. You get home and you have just that, that normal sort of 60 watt bulb sort of illuminating and you're like, oh, don't, like, don't quite like it as much in the, uh, the mirror I have at home, in the lighting I have at, at home. 
Uh, Lighting exposes things like it could be the stain on your shirt. It could be a smudge on your face. Mud on your shoes after a nighttime run. Unevenly applied makeup or um, any number of things that you're like, oh, was, have, I walk, have I walked through my day looking like, looking like this? Well, light does that. Now go into a dark room and open the curtains. And when the light comes streaming in, and we might not get to experience that for a few months, but um, when, when we get on the other side... <laughs> One morning, we'll open the, the curtains and the light will come in and we'll see all the spots that we missed in our, in our cleaning, if we were cleaning. The dust is standing on the table or on the shelf and it's, we, well, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about that. We have company for the first time in ages and, 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 and we uh, open the, the curtains or the light and say, oh, oh, I must have missed this spot. Really, you know. <laughs> well, we we then take a look just at the the sun as it streams in and you see billions of particles flying through the air. What is this? Am I breathing this? And you are. Don't think too much about it. It will destroy you. It may seem like a bad thing, the light that exposes, but it's not. You know, in this case, particularly as near to God, we are, we are called to walk in the light as He is in the light. But walking in the light will show us things about ourselves that we don't like and we know we don't like them, but we need to be careful that we don't project those things onto someone else and certainly not onto God. Being called and brought into the light is the kindness of God so that as we step into the light and continue to walk in the light, we see ourselves more clearly. And initially, that exposure may make us react, be careful, with more bitterness. Because we reflect on God and His grace, and we reflect on ourselves and our sin, and we're angry with ourselves, but we immaturely project that anger onto God and His people in a way that we might not even be consciously realizing. We assume the worst about other people's reactions to us if they know our sin. Well, that person hates me. Well, that person is, they, 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 can't, they probably can't stand me. I can't look that man in the eye. I, I, I can't have a conversation with that sister. That's not how you, you've been treated by Jesus, is it? Is that how, how God treats us? I think about this often the prayer, the model prayer. It says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Can you pray that prayer without having the fear of God? I actually don't know if I want God to forgive me of my trespasses like I forgive others. I just want Him to forgive me of my trespasses. And end of. But listen... As He has forgiven us, so we ought also to forgive. Mercifully for those who are really back, um, there's good news. And this, is, this good news goes deeper than a, a, a phrase I'm really weary of. 
I, I take into calling people out who use it. It's better and deeper than forgiving yourself. People say, I can't forgive myself. It's a category that is not found in Scripture, actually. And we can, we can talk about forgiving yourself. I know what you mean. You, you mean you feel guilty. You, you, you're burdened by guilt and shame. But it's not, you don't have to forgive yourself. Who have you wronged? I know the Scriptures talk about you, there's some sins you commit against your own body and all of that. But have people forgiven you? Walk in that forgiveness. Has God forgiven you? Walk in that forgiveness. What is more important than your personal perspective or individual feelings about your sin is that God is gracious and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness as you come to Jesus. So you need not worry nor be afraid. Let, let what you are thinking and feeling about those situations that have you being bitter be overwhelmed by the goodness of a gracious God who has brought you back to Bethlehem. Mercifully, for those who are really back, it's just this, uh, the, the, the moments of bitterness, of anger, of, of despair. They should simply be snapshots, not the motion picture of your life story. The story is one of redemption. It's one of hope. It's one of assurance. It is one of good news that is not found in yourself, but in Him. One other thing I want, I, I want you to see, and I've tried to layer it in throughout, but I just want this to be very clear. When you arrive in Bethlehem, it may cause a big commotion. It, it, it may expose your personal condition. You may see, I'm under the judgment of God, or I have been under the judgment of God, and it's changed me. It shaped me in ways that make me profoundly uncomfortable. Arriving in Bethlehem will bring you ultimately to Christ. Look at the last words of our text. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now you might keep reading without noticing the significance of this moment. After all, we are far from the ancient Jewish world and we're quite far also from the agricultural world more generally. What he's talking about here is the harvest of the winter barley. I asked Juliana um, when the barley harvest is. As I was opening this text for myself in the week, at the beginning of the barley harvest, when would that be? Well, that would be in the autumn, wouldn't it? Because we just automatically assume harvest is autumn. But they sowed barley in the wintertime. They had two barley harvests. And the winter barley was harvested more in mid, sometimes even late spring. In fact, the beginning of the barley harvest is marked by three Jewish feasts that happen back to back. Now in the new year, we're going to have uh, my brother Reagan from the Angel Church do a tea and talk series on Sunday afternoons. 
looking at the Jewish festivals of Scripture. So we'll have an opportunity to learn more uh, about those because they do inform how we read the New Testament in some ways. Uh, but what I want you to see here is this. The three, the three festivals, back to back. Patricia, you, you work in a, a, a Jewish school. Annie, you work often in the Jewish community at Care Home. Presently, you're working now. Sorry, you are in a nursery now. So we have to, you, you know where I'm headed with this. The three festivals back to back. No? Okay. <laughs> Notes. Impress your colleagues. It is coming up. It is not that. We're talking spring, late spring. Passover. Passover. Pascha. That's right. So, Passover. Do you remember Passover? The angel of death passed over the homes of those marked by the blood of a lamb as the people of Israel were leaving slavery in Egypt. Passover. Secondly, unleavened bread. Now, we often bring these two together. They're, they're actually separate feasts on the calendar. The, the festival on the unleavened bread uh, is when they were leaving slavery and, and they're leaving Egypt and they're being united as a family unto God. So they celebrate a fellowship meal on the move as it were. They don't have time for the bread to rise so they eat unleavened bread. It's called the bread of affliction, but it points toward salvation. And then what's the third one? First fruits. Right after, first fruits. They're entering the land of promise, and when they get there, God is going to provide abundant harvest for them. Leviticus 23:10 says this: "The first fruits are the first uh, uh, fruits of the barley harvest. Bear in mind, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now hear, hear this clearly, and you shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. I want you to think about those feasts for just a moment as they relate to Naomi and then as they relate to you. The angel of death has passed over her. It took her husband. It took her sons. But she still lives. And her daughter-in-law Ruth is alive and with her. And not only alive physically, but alive spiritually. Your God shall be my God. Naomi has experienced her Passover. She spent time away from the land. She's endured an oppressive season, far from the fellowship of God's people, unclean, empty, and surrounded by people who do not know or love God. But she's on the move. She's commenced her own exodus as she leaves Moab and its corrupting power and returns to the promises and protections of God's covenant community. His people, His place. She's had her share of the bread of affliction. She has had her feast of unleavened bread. And now, Naomi is coming back to Bethlehem with Ruth, and as she arrives, we are told, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And somewhere, a sheaf of barley is being waved by a priest before the Lord, so He will accept His people. The famine is over. The promise of the land is being realized. 
and Naomi and Ruth are about to enter into the blessings of the first fruits. You're still wondering, okay, I'm hoping over years, some of you, you've been trained mentally to know where I'm headed with this. Coming to Bethlehem will bring us ultimately to Christ. Passover tells us about people marked out by the blood of a lamb for salvation. Jesus is the Lamb of God who by His death on the cross marks who believe in Him as His own, satisfying God's justice, turning away God's wrath, and saving us from our sins and their eternal consequences. As the old-time Gospel song says, asking a profound question, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Unleavened bread tells us of people brought into communion with God from a faraway place of idolatry and slavery. And the night of His betrayal, Jesus took bread, unleavened bread, and He broke it and He prophesied of what was about to happen and what it would mean when He said, this is My body which is broken for you. If Passover points to Jesus' crucifixion by which His blood is shed, um, unleavened bread speaks of its last moments and its aftermath as all that is left of Jesus is a broken body like bits of unleavened bread broken to pieces. But it's a body broken to put us back together and to bring us into a family. Have you eaten of the bread of affliction? Have you remembered the body broken and the blood shed and determined to thereby throw out the old leavening influences of sin and rebellion against God? Have you departed that old place where you were captive to thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to God? And have you entered into or are you marching towards the promised land of salvation fully and freely by grace through faith in Christ alone. First fruits celebrated how seed had gone down into the ground and, and literally, chemically died and come up as fields of barley. Jesus went down into the ground, but just like the priest was supposed to go into the presence of God, did you notice? On the day after the Sabbath, early Sunday morning, Jesus got up, and on that Sunday of His resurrection, the New Testament says, became the first fruits from the dead. And as the priest, He waves nothing other than His risen self as the first fruits from the dead in the presence of God so that God will what? Accept His people. Can you say this morning that Jesus has presented Himself as first fruits on your behalf? That He has put Himself forward to represent you so that you are accepted and loved And He lives, can you say that He lives forever to pray for me and my salvation? There is a true and better barley harvest. 
His name is Jesus. In His presence is fullness, not emptiness. Of joy, not bitterness, forevermore. And so whoever you are, wherever you are from, whatever you have done, however far you have wandered, however badly you have strayed, no matter how empty you feel or bitter you have become, He invites all of us to come to Him to return, as it were, back to Bethlehem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks that in Your mercy and grace, We live in the time of the barley harvest. Passover has happened in our lives. If we're trusting in Jesus, you have passed over. Your justice is satisfied. Your wrath is turned away. Unleavened bread is, is a memory, a body broken for us a perfect sacrifice once and for all. We live in the barley harvest, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So help us who have died to sin to be raised indeed to walk in newness of life. And those who, those who walk in sin, may that be their testimony. May that be their profession. May it be everyone in this room, may all us know that Jesus has gone into your presence victoriously presenting himself as the priest on the day after the Sabbath, waving himself as the first fruits before you so that you will accept your people. Lord, if there's anyone here today who is trusting in some other system for salvation, maybe they even, they even profess faith in you but um, um, they have an understanding of salvation which is more by works. We pray that you would deliver them, free them from that, um, and cause them to, to walk in the beauty and glory of, of Christ and the power of His salvation. Lord, if any of us are struggling to be assured of your forgiveness, may, may we be assured that you have loved us and you have brought us into your family. May that be our identity. May that be our personality. May that shape who we are and how we are and what we do. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is not, not able to say, um, I'm, 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 your, I'm your people, we pray that they would be. Perhaps our issues are more relational and we have been forgiven, but we struggle to forgive. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be so entranced by the gospel that all other things fall to the side. Help us to walk in the joyful liberty and freedom of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, his death, his burial, and his resurrection for our sins. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,